Well, good morning. There's uh, odds in the back. We were, there's a betting poll going on to see if all the technology will work for me today. So we're ready to go. For those of you who haven't been here, I've been struggling, but we're good. It's all going to work today. And everyone's here. That's good to see you. The first service was a little light. I wasn't sure whether they're afraid to get sick or just sleepy. So looks to me like you were just sleepy. So it's good to be here with you. We are in Second Samuel, okay? And we've been in First and Second Samuel for over a year now. We've did all of First Samuel next last time, and now we're to this point. And you know, we started with the birth of David, and now we've arrived at the point where David is going to be anointed king over the United Israel. It has taken us over two books and over thirty years to get to this point. Um, and now that we're here, there's so many questions, answers that we want to know. What kind of king will David be? What's he going to do when he gets all the power and authority placed on him? There's that old saying, absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? Will that affect David or not? Will he still be God's man or will he like Saul before him, who's enticed by his own ambition rather than God's calling on his life? So those are some of the questions that we get to look at and ask today in these next several chapters as we get going. So let's jump right into it and see how it unfolds when David gets to be united king over all of Israel. Maybe. Here we go. First Samuel 5, starting in verse 1. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, you are our, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. And when all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David the king over Israel. And David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah for seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned over all of Israel and Judah for 33 years. So there we have it. Just like that, it's done. David's the king. Saul is gone. The opponents and the obstacles are out of the way. But what marks this text? What's at the center of this story through and through? It's Yahweh. It's the Lord. As we read today and think about what God has to tell us about David's new reign, it isn't that David's on the throne, it's that Yahweh's on the throne through David. We are told, the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people. The Lord, they anointed him, placed oil on him. You know what the word for anointing is in the Old Testament? Meshah, to anoint which we get the word Messiah in the New Testament, right? The anointed one of God has come to rule over these people. And in so doing, think about the sharp contrast that we've seen in Saul's life. The end of Saul's reign as king king of Israel, he wasn't led by what God wanted him to do, but he was led by his own ambitions, his own paranoias and insecurities. He was led by his desire to make sure that his people um, and his family would reign forever. But from the very beginning of David's reign as king 
and throughout his entire life building up to this point, David has shown us that the thing that drives him isn't his own ambitions, but what God would have for us. It's the story that happens over and over and over for him. Why was David able to defeat Goliath? Because he was the great warrior, Goliath's equal? No, but he trusted the Lord, didn't he? Why is it that David twice had Saul delivered into his hand, right? Where he was completely defenseless and he refused to kill him. Because he knew that God had put him there and God would take him out from there. And he was willing to trust in him. Why was David able to trust um, Jonathan, Saul's son, to protect him? Because he knew the heart of Jonathan and knew the heart of God too, right? And here when David takes the throne, we see that he can do it in confidence because he knew, knows who put him there. The Lord, huh? It is an incredible luxury that David has that God has been acting on his behalf to make this happen. I'm here to kind of tell, I'm not to kind of tell you, I'm here to tell you this morning, this is how God works in all of our lives, isn't he? He's called us to something. Some of us, that calling might be, uh, you know, to play in the band, to serve as a deacon, to be a light in your high school, whatever. He's got a plan for you and he's calling you to it. When you get there, how are you going to lead? Are you going to do it like Saul out of our own ambition? Are you going to do it like David, trusting that Yahweh has been working in his life from the beginning to make it happen? I have an aunt who texts me every Sunday morning before I'm awake, telling me that she's praying for me and praying for you. The marvel of that is is that now she's doing it via text, okay? But she's been doing it my entire life. And about... 15, 20 years ago, she called me. We were sitting at Christmas and she said, you know, um, when you were in junior high, the Lord told me you would be a pastor and I've been praying for you ever since. And I don't tell you that just to make you feel bad because I'm special and all because, you know. um, But I tell you that because it has been so helpful to me to know that this is a God thing and not a Todd thing. That God has been arranging the details of my life so that I might come serve you. Right, And I might do it with confidence, especially when you get a little squirrely. And I'm wondering if I'm doing the right thing, huh? Um, but knowing that that's what he wants. And that's what God wants from each of us. As she told me that this is what God is telling me that I'm supposed to be doing with my life, I'm going to tell you now that I know he's got something for you too. I can't tell you what it's going to be in each and every one of your lives, but he has a plan for you, and I promise you he has a place where you can serve him. One of the challenges, though, and I think the differences that we see between Saul and David, is are we going to do what we want and call it our service to God, or are we going to be like David and say, I'll serve you no matter, even if it means that I have to let the guy who's trying to kill me go, right? Are we going to let our ambition decide what, how we're going to serve? Or are we going to let God's? And the challenging part of that is how do we know the difference sometimes, huh? Because one thing I think is that like a lot of times the thing that you love to do most is probably where God wants you. But then I've seen people who want to be up front or want to have a claim try to push themselves to that place. And that usually doesn't end well, does it? So how do we know if what we think we want to do is what God wants us to do? Or how do we know if it's what we want to do, if it's what we want to do? 
That's a hard question to answer, but I have two bits of advice for you. They both have to do with being honest. I think the mark of maturity in a person, and one of the ways that we know what we're supposed to do, is that we become okay with who God made us to, made us to be. Huh? Do you know who your gifts are? I'm looking at my friend Scott, who is incredibly gifted with his hands. And as he's embraced that, I've seen God bless him over and over in what he's doing and how he's parenting as well. I see other of you that serve us on, at Friday, on Tuesday nights at 242, and you can see that they have the gift of service and they come alive in that place. One of the things as we grow up and grow into our full kind of awareness of who God's made us to be is that we'll start to figure this out. So that's just kind of a side. But how do we figure it out? The first step is honest prayer, right? Honest prayer. The kind of prayer that we see from David over and over again in his story and in the Psalms. The kind of prayer that's not afraid to say the things that they really feel, even if they don't feel very holy at the time. The kind of prayer that says, I want your will for my life, not my desires for my life. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Huh? Notice both of those types of prayer starts with what God wants for us first. So as we figure out who God's made us to be and how we can be his people, like David was his person, we need to start with honest prayer. And the second bit of advice is you need honest, wise people in your life who know you and will tell you the truth. Huh? So many of our friends or some of our friends will just tell us what we want to hear because they want to be our friends. These aren't the kind of folks that we need as we decide who God's made us to be. We need the kind of friends that will gently and kindly tell us what they know to be true. Maybe some who've been through the stage of life that you've been, who've got some wisdom from walking through the difficulties. But honest prayer and honest people will help us know who God's made us to be. Honest enough to say with you, Todd, I think I see a little too much of Todd and not enough Yahweh in that. You need to put that away. And that's what I think we see the gift that the Lord has given David here. There is no doubt in this story who has got David to the place that he's at, is there? God has been faithful to him, and David to this point in the story has been faithful to Yahweh in continuing to be his man. He's called by the Lord and served in light of that calling. What was he called to is the next question. And this is where this story surprises me. David's the king. He's united Israel. It's the height of their history. He's eliminated his enemies. He's control of the military. He's control of the finances. What will he do now, right? Sounds like party time, doesn't it? He's got it all and he can use it any way he wants it. But God tells him that he will not be the king of the great party in Jerusalem, but you will be the shepherd of my people. Now, this shouldn't surprise us because we know that David has been the shepherd since the beginning of this story. Some of you might remember all the way back to 1 Samuel 16 and Samuel's walking around Israel looking for the next king of Israel because he knows that Saul's not going to work out. And he ends up going to David's house. And David has 12 brothers, right? And Samuel's like, I'm sure we can find the next king of Israel from one of these brothers. And this is what we hear at the end of this story. He's gone through all the brothers. He's looked at them all and the Lord keeps telling Samuel, nope, that's not the one, that's not the one, that's not the one. And Jesse had seven sons. I said 12, I lied. 
Don't believe a word I say. Jesse had seven sons, seven, twelve. They're both biblical numbers, right? Yeah. Seven sons that passed before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. He's so insignificant and young that we sent him outside to watch the family dog is what it says, right? He's with the animals to make sure that they don't run away. They aren't eaten or stolen while the important stuff goes on inside the house. Shepherd is not a position of glory or prestige, but one of hard work and sacrifice. Lonely times in the field, watching sheep that don't do anything but eat grass. Caring for them, providing for them, and doing the dirty work while everyone else is in the Father's house celebrating with the exotic traveler from out of town. So what are the characteristics of these shepherds? What does a shepherd look like? And David models it for us in his life and in the story and the way he leads Israel. And the first thing is that they're personally interested. Now, growing up on the farm as I did, I can remember one day my father and I were out in the fields and I think we'd been pruning this orchard and all the prunings dropped to the ground. Then we hired a guy to come through and take the prunings and put them in the middle of the row, like pile them up right here so the tractor could come and take them away. So not hard work particularly, but not particularly enthralling. And we were walking through the orchard, and we got to the far end of the orchard. And if we were like in this orchard, it's a quarter of a mile long, right? And so we were about right here, and it went to the end of the row, which was the back there. And the hired man at 5 o'clock, he had this much farther to go. He'd been doing this all day, and he stopped and walked out of the orchard and left all the prunings to be piled in the last part of the orchard. My father was furious, right? He was like, could he have not just worked for two more minutes because now we have to walk out there and the, any, all that stuff. It just goes to show that he did not have any personal investment in what he was doing, huh? This was not his farm. These were not his sheep. Um, he was there to do a job without any kind of personal ownage to it. But that's not what a shepherd does. We'll notice that when Samuel has come to David's house, they don't have a hired man with the sheep. They have their own son whose livelihood is connected with the well-being of the sheep. Think about that for a moment. The king of Israel is told that the people of Israel are his. He is personally responsible for them. In the same way our parents are personally responsible and invested with us, the shepherd is personally involved and responsible for his sheep. And that's what David has been called to do care for us in a way that it's beyond a job or an inconvenience, but the center of our life, the thing that we think about and care about and love. The next thing that the shepherd has to do is provide food and drink, right? Seems so obvious, but David is called to care for the people of Israel. He's not to take the wealth of Israel and spend it on himself, but he's responsible to make sure that they have what they need to get by. The water, the food, the well-being. And then the final thing that the shepherd does for them is that he protects them. That might have been the biggest job of a shepherd in the ancient world at night to protect them from wild animals, protect them from themselves. The sheep tend to be stupid. Protect them from um, the dangers of people who might steal them, etc., etc., etc. 
The job of Israel's king is not glorious and self-serving, but sacrificial. It's hard work. Because let me tell you, sheep are not the easiest animals to care for. Have I ever told you before that when I was in about the fifth or the sixth grade, I was the Glen County Pig Showmanship Champion? We were pretty, pretty awesome, right? The best thing about showing pigs is that you get a cane and you get to beat the pigs with it when the judge isn't looking, right? The pig, you direct it with the cane and you like move it around and the idea is to get this pig right in front of the judge. Some of you have done 4-H. I know you know what I'm talking about. And so I had this pig who, you know, and 4-H animals are usually really tame because they've had a lot of interaction with people and all. And so I forget what year it was, but, you know, I had this pig and everything went all right. And my dad showed pigs before and so... I won the championship. It was a crowning moment in my life. I'm very proud. But one of the things that happens if you win the championship is then you get put into this round robin competition, okay? So now that I'm the champion pick showman, they must think I know how to show cows and sheep and goats and all other kinds of things. And so they put us in a whole white uniform, right? You ever seen 4-H uniforms that are white? That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life, but that's another thing altogether. With a very nice fake tie and a funny looking hat. And we put us in these, these rings, all of us that won their different championships, and uh, we have to show these other animals. And so, like, the day before this happens, we're all over, and the other one's like, how do you do this? Because I've never had a cow or a goat or whatever. And so they're giving us pointers to how to show it. And so we go through, and um, we had to do a horse, too. And this is not really PG. The horse dropped, and like, you're trying to get the horse. To, anyway, it's a bad deal. But I get there and I'm showing the sheep. And like I said, most of the time, 4-H animals are very, very placid. But for some reason, they thought it would be a good idea to take this group of sheep that weren't 4-H animals and just put them in the ring with all of us newbies, right? And so I'm down here like this. And you got to hold the neck up and you're trying to present it and stuff. But the one thing you don't want to happen when you're showing a sheep is for the sheep to get loose. Because it's a bad look to be chasing the sheep around the ring, right? So I'm holding it, and for some reason, all these sheep spook at once, and they kind of jump, and they're pack animals, and they're skitterish and all that. And I know I don't want to get the sheep to get away. So I just grab onto that sheep by the neck with all my might, and I wasn't a big, sturdy guy back then. I was little and skinny. And this, the sheep did not get away, but he drugged me around the ring about three times. And the worst part of it is I heard my mom laughing the same way I heard Phil is when the sheep was just dragging me around and around and around. That's what sheep will do to you. They will abuse you and take advantage of you. They're stupid and out of control, and God has told you, us that we have to love them anyways. And that loving them is going to cost you. And you're going to have to provide for them and protect them from themselves sometimes. And the very first thing that David, God tells David to do when he makes him the king is not celebrate with all the spoils of kingdom, but to love these sheep. And that's what he calls us to do too, huh? And you know what? This is one of the oldest and the best biblical traditions. This tradition to be a shepherd we saw was one of the first times we see David in the book of First and Second Samuel. What's he doing? He's shepherding the sheep. After he goes away, this task of shepherding goes on to the prophets. 
If you want to do a word study on, pro, on shepherding and you put shepherd and read all the text about the prophets, you'll see prophet after prophet after prophet shows up and speaks to Israel's kings because they're not shepherding the sheep but looking after their own personal interest. In Ezekiel 34, the word of the Lord came to me. To me would be Ezekiel. The son of man, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. The word to the prophets and Israel had lost sight of what the king was supposed to do and fallen back into the model of Saul rather than to David. But God didn't quit on us, does he? And the prophets came and told us that we're to be shepherds. And since we weren't able to do it very well, he sent his son. And his son shepherded the sheep. And in fact, in John 10, he says, I'm the good shepherd. And what defines the good shepherd? The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. But the tradition doesn't end there. When that good shepherd goes to the cross for his sheep and is resurrected and restored and brought into glory, he starts this thing called the church, right? And this thing called the church is supposed to be led by these guys named elders. And hopefully it doesn't mean they have to be that old. Um, But his commands to those elders look very, very similar. He says to them in 1 Peter 5, 1, 5, excuse me, be shepherds of God's flock that, is under, that are under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing, dis, pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. That's what it means to be a shepherd. That's what my elders and fellow elders here at Sierra Grace are trying to do with you. for better or worse success sometimes, not your fault, ours. But the story doesn't end there either, does it? We should know about this tradition of shepherding because David's most famous psalm is Psalm what? And he says, who's our shepherd? God's our shepherd. In light of what I just said, think how different that is in the way the world perceives God. He's our shepherd who's personally involved with us, provides us, and protects us. He says, the Lord is my shepherd, and I lack for nothing. He provides for me. He loves me. He takes me to green pastures where I am protected and at peace and well-fed. He leads me to quiet waters where I drink plentifully in the abundance of his care for me, and he refreshes my soul. And on we should go. The image of shepherd, as we know from the story of Jesus' birth, aren't the people of glory or kingdom or majesty. They're the kind of lowly rascals that do the real work of the kingdom. That's what he calls David to be as his king. That's what he calls us to be as well. So where does David go from here? Now that we've seen that he knows he's been called by God and he knows what his marching orders, what does Second Samuel want us to know about David next? And he wants us to know that God is at with him and blessing him. So let's read on and see what we learn. In verse 6 and forward, The king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. Now let me just give you a little background here. 
Jerusalem has not been the key, where the kingship has been, the capital has. It's been in Hebron, right? Jebusites are this band of Canaanites that the Israelites have not been able to get out of the land because is, Jerusalem is a, a city on a hill, right? Very defendable, hard to, to breach and attack, and we'll see that develop as we go on. So why are they still here? Because they can't be, they haven't to this point been able to been removed from the land, okay? The king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, you will not get in here, right? Even the blind and the lame can ward you off, they thought. David cannot get in. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. On that day, David had said, anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach those lame and blind who are David's enemies. That is why they say the blind and the lame will not enter the palace. So let me explain what's going on, right? It is so defensible. The Jebusites are taunting him, saying, you know what? It's not even hard to keep you out. The blind and the lame can do it, right? And so then from this point in the story, it's not that David has a problem with the blind and the lame. We actually see later that David takes in Saul's son who's lame and cares for him. But David is calling the Jebusites or mocking them with their own term. He's saying, you know, blind. It's like when I say, someone says, oh, we won our basketball game. And I'll say, who'd you play? Sister Mary's School of the Blind, right? Like anyone can beat Sister Mary's School of the Blind. Not, not that, not, you know, I know that's not very PC, but, um, but that's what's going on here. They say the blind and the lame could beat you guys. And then through the Lord's blessing and David crawling up the water shaft, He's able to defeat them. And from this point in the story forward, David isn't mad at the blind and the lame, but he's calling the Jebusites the blind and the lame. Make sense? Right. Good. Okay. And the final thing then is then David, David then took residence up in the fortress and called it the city of David. And he built up the area around it from the terraces inward. And he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. The king has landed in Jerusalem. He's chosen Jerusalem, one, because it's defensible, but probably more likely left Hebron because it represents all of Israel, not just Judah that Hebron did. It is the middle ground where the people will come together. And in so doing, David finishes what the Israelites were supposed to finish when they conquered the the land, right? And get rid of these Jebusites. Why? Because we trusted in the Lord. And we've already discussed a little bit this language about the blind and the lame. But the reason I want us to look at this thing is that I was so struck this week when I was looking at this text. How it's so similar to Jesus' entering Jerusalem. You remember that in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus walks into Jerusalem. And when Jesus walks into Jerusalem, what is he doing? He's establishing a new kingdom, isn't he? Just like David is here. David is taking over from Saul and uniting the people of Israel. And the first command of God is, you're going to be a different kind of king. You're going to be the kind of king that's more interested in the people than itself. What is it? 800 years later, Jesus walks into Jerusalem and does the same thing, huh? He's going to establish a kingdom that's so different that many of his peers didn't realize he was the king at all. How is he going to go about doing that? He's going to clean it up first. With David, that meant to get these Jebusites out of here. With Jesus, what's the first thing he does once he walks into Jerusalem? 
cleans out the temple, doesn't he? He's going to take those people who are profiting and self-interest, using the temple for their own self-interest, and says, get out of here. And then the final thing that we see, you know, this language of lame and blind, right? David drives them out, but Jesus does what to them? He heals them. Pretty cool, huh? This is the story of Jesus and David together. This is what it means to be God's kind of king. Our kingdoms aren't about ourselves, but they're about serving those around us, particularly those that are lame and blind and helpless. Final bit of the story we're going to get to. It's a bunch of verses, but it really is going to talk about two things. David's family is prosperous, and David militarily is prosperous. Let's read it real fast and see what we can learn here. Now, Haram, king of Tyre, sent an envoy to David's with cedar logs and carpenters and stone masons, and they built a palace for David. And then David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of who? The people of Israel. So, point one, David's successful because his contemporaries around him are sending gifts. After he left Hebron, David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem. Now, this doesn't sound good to us. It sounds like a nightmare. Um, but for them, this was a sign that things were going well, right? And more sons and daughters were born to him. And these are the names of the children born to him there. Shemua, Shobab, Shoab, Shobab, whatever that is. Nathan, that's a beautiful name, isn't it? Nathan, so easy. Solomon. Ibhar, Ishua, Nepheg, Jephthia, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliaphat. And when the, okay, so let's talk about this a little bit. The first reason we know David's doing well is because his contemporaries are sending gifts. What's the first commandment in the Bible? Go forth and multiply, right? What's David doing here? He's multiplying, right? Um, a sign that God has blessed him and that things are going well for him. And now here's the last bit of it. And after he left Hebron, David took more... Oh, I'd already read that. And when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, they went up in full force to search for him. But David heard... So now the Philistines are going to test him out. What kind of king is this? We knew he was good in the past, but now that he's the boss man, will he live up to what he did before, Right? So, but David heard about it and went down to the stronghold. And now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephraim. So David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hands? What did David do? What's his first military move? To inquire of the Lord, right? And the Lord answered him, go, for I will surely deliver the Philistines into your hands. So David went to Baal Perazim. And there he defeated them. And he said, as water breaks out, the Lord has broken out against my enemies before me. Who gets the credit? The Lord. And so that place was called Baal Perazim. And the Philistines abandoned their idols there. And David and his men carried them off. And once more, the Philistines came. You know, we're not so sharp. And so you'll see in David's story that if he has an important point to make, he's going to tell it to you twice, right? Saul twice into David's hands. And now the Philistines attack for a second time. And once more, the Philistines came up and spread out in the valley of Rephraim. So David inquired of the Lord. What did David do? 
Yeah, there you're catching on. So, and he answered, do not go straight up, but circle around behind them and attack them and attack them in front of the poplar tree. And as soon as you hear the sound of marching troop marching in the top of the poplar trees, move quickly, because that will mean the Lord has gone out in front of you to strike the Philistine army. So David did as the Lord commanded him, and he struck down the Philistines all the way from Gibeon to Gezer. The king is here for good, huh? David's success is in his relationship with the nations around him, with the abundance of his family, and his military success because over and over again, he starts with prayer, doesn't he? I find it ironic and a little bit interesting that these military battles all start with prayer. He inquires of the Lord over and over again. Because at the center of who David is, he knows that his success isn't in his own ability, but in God's faithfulness. Huh? And if he is tapped into that, he will indeed be successful. As far as I can tell in the story of the Old Testament, this is the last time we hear from the Philistines in any significant way. David is able to do what the Israelites before him weren't. Interesting, huh? The king is here for good, and the king has been prosperous, and God continues to bless him because David continues to rely on him and do his work. So what do we learn from this? You know, as I've been reading this, you can't help but put yourself into David's shoes, huh? Think about what he teaches me and the way I lead or the way I serve, where he's placed me in my life. There's some incredible things that I think David shows us that we could learn from here. David leads by serving, not by ruling, huh? He leads by serving, and that serving is sacrificial, not self-serving. David's leadership looks an awful lot like Jesus. David's leadership looks an awful lot like Jesus. You can't go bad modeling your life after that guy. And the final thing I think that I learned from this is David's leadership is so very prayerful, huh? At the heart of what he's doing, and he's so faithful about not taking himself too seriously, but going to the Lord over and over again. And why is he able to do that? I think he's able to do that because he is so confident in God's faithfulness, huh? God has not let him down, and he knows it. He's experienced in in his life. And he goes to God knowing that God's for him and faithful to him. It's been a trying week and months in our world, huh? I look at you today and say there's faithfulness in you because you're here, because the world would say the wise thing to do isn't to come to a place like this where you might get sick and die, right? Um, But we are not the people of fear. We're the people of faith, aren't we? I've told you before, one of my favorite books is, well, I've got a lot of favorite books. This book called The Rise of Christianity made an impact on me, written by a guy, Rodney Stark, who when he wrote it wasn't a Christian. He was a sociologist and he did a lot of research on Mormons. And then he wanted to do the sociological work on how come Christianity grew the way it did. And in so doing this work and looking at the early Christians and how they grew, guess what happened to him? He became a Christian. Now he teaches at Baylor in their religious studies department, right? But in this book, he talks about, from a sociological perspective, what happened. 
And one of the things that he says in this book, that two of the events that happened in the first several hundred years of the church's history that made the church grow more and more and more were the plagues that hit Europe. What? How did the plagues cause the church to grow? His premise is, is what happened is that in that period of time when panic set out through all of Europe, everybody did what was right in their own eyes, right? To steal a line from the book of Judges. And they all spread out, those who could afford it, the rich, into the hills and isolated themselves, isolated themselves by themselves because that's what isolating yourselves, isolating means, right? But the thing that happened when they did that is those people that isolated themselves had no one to care for them. But a large number of these Christians knew that their service was self-sacrificial and used the example of Jesus who's willing to die for his sheep, right, as their model. And so rather than running away, they stayed and cared for one another and the sick in their communities. That did two things. Number one is it earned them a whole heck of a lot of street cred, didn't it? Because who are the people that cared for me when I was the most vulnerable? The second thing it does, I'm looking at the economics back there, is the number game, numbers game worked out for them, right? If they stuck together and cared for themselves, and that was the secret of, of surviving the plague, then they had more people survive the plague than the people who looked only after themselves, and so numerically they grew, and exponentially that caught up with them, and one of the reasons the church grew. What a powerful word for us, huh? What's going to be our response? Are we going to look after ourselves or are we going to serve this one another in this world around us? Are we willing to do it even if it costs us? Will we love our neighbor as God loves us?